Please turn with me in your Bible to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, you will find um, a Bible in front of you if you do not have your own copy of the Scriptures. And I do, you're welcome to use that. And if you don't own a Bible, there are Bibles available that you can take uh, with you um, that are in the foyer. I do encourage you to find the outline provided in the bulletin to take notes there. And then to use the discussion questions that are found on the back side of that outline uh, later on today. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, this epistle was written uh, by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul had been called by the Lord Jesus Christ when he was on his way to Damascus uh, to arrest Christians. He was an enemy of the Lord Jesus, an enemy of the church of Christ. But the Lord Jesus arrested him on his way to Damascus as he called him unto himself with an irresistible call. Calling Paul unto himself into fellowship with his son and calling Paul to serve the Lord Jesus as an apostle, as a witness of the risen Christ and as an official representative of Christ, taking the word of Christ, not just to Jews, but beyond Jews, to Gentiles. And Paul has, by this point, he has been on three missionary journeys. It's during his third missionary journey that he writes this letter to a church that he planted on his second missionary journey. He had gone to Corinth. Uh, it seems to be that he was the first person to take the gospel to Corinth. Uh, Corinth was the sin city of the Roman Empire. Uh, Corinth uh, was known uh, for its sexual immorality. It was known for its pluralism. And uh, if anything would be offensive to them, it would be the gospel of Jesus Christ that there's only one God and that apart from repentance of sin and faith in a man who was crucified, one will be judged by God for eternity. But if one repents of their sin and believes in this one who was crucified and was raised on the third day, in glory, who was the Son of God, who became flesh, if one believes in Him, they receive forgiveness of sins, eternal life, all the riches of salvation. A very offensive message in a pluralistic society, an immoral society, a, a godless society. Paul was afraid. We read in the book of Acts. But the Lord Jesus appeared to him and said, Do not be afraid, for I have many in this city. And the Lord proceeded to save those many in that city as he strengthened the Apostle Paul to continue to minister the gospel in Corinth. And the Lord called to himself men, women, boys, and girls, calling them into the fellowship of his Son and beginning to transform their lives. Now, Paul has heard of problems in the Corinthian church. More, more problems than he heard of in any of the other churches that he writes to in the New Testament. 
uh, there, there are problems of immorality, there are problems of divisiveness, and others. Paul has a whole list of concerns to address in this letter. And far more concerns to address in this letter than in any of his other epistles. Yet there's more of a weight at the beginning of this epistle on the perfect standing that the Corinthian believers have in Christ than there is at the front of any other epistle that Paul writes to a church. We saw that last time. How Paul emphasized the perfect position that these believers have in the Lord Jesus Christ. As those who are in Christ, they have been sanctified. That means that when they were justified by faith, God set them apart from sin and from the world unto Himself for His service. And in setting them apart, God set them free from the dominion and the power that sin once had over their lives. And He not only in sanctifying them, set them free from the power of sin, but He consecrated them unto Himself for His service. Giving them the highest privilege in the world, that of serving the Almighty God who created all things, through whom all things exist, for, for, uh, for, um, for whose glory all things exist. There is no greater privilege than serving the King of kings. And here you have sinners saved by grace. That, that's all of us as believers. Sinners saved by grace. And Paul says, you have been sanctified. You have been set apart unto God, unto His service. You have been called to be saints. That is the sovereign call of God, the effectual call of God. By His call, you have been made saints. Not by anything that you have done, but by the call of God, you have been made saints. Holy ones. You are the recipients of God's grace. You are the recipients of His peace. And in Christ, you are together with all in every place who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether Jew or Gentile, you are part of the body of Christ, composed of Jews and Gentiles. In all these places where the gospel is going, you are connected to all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and theirs. Now Paul in our text, he continues from there. He continues to speak of the operation of grace in the lives of the Corinthians, which tells us of the operations of grace in our lives as well, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is laying important foundation here, up front, very quick, in the epistle, before he gets to addressing the problems in the church, he establishes our perfect position in Christ. When we're not living in a way that's pleasing to God, we're living in a way that is contrary to this perfect position that we have in Christ. And it's only because we have this perfect position in Christ that we can heed any of the instruction that Paul gives in his epistles for how we are now to live as those who have been redeemed by the precious blood 
of Jesus. So, with that as the context, I'm going to read to us 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4-9. through 9. Please stand in honor of the Word of God. Verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is God's holy word. You may be seated. Paul begins saying, I give thanks to God always for you. This is the first thing that the Apostle Paul says after greeting the Corinthians. I give thanks to God always for you. Not not meaning that every single second... He is giving thanks to them. That would be impo- for them. That would be impossible. But meaning that at every opportunity, he gives thanks to God for them. That he frequently gives thanks to God for the Corinthian believers. Paul is communicating to here that he did not suddenly think of the Corinthians when he decided to write this letter. It's not that he lost sight of them. He, he forgot about them. And then just recently, when these matters were brought to his attention, oh, his mind went back to them. No, he has been regularly, frequently thanking the Lord for them. And after thanking the Lord for them, he would certainly pray for them, but he wants them first to know that he regularly thanks the Lord for them. In this letter, we will learn of a division between some of the Corinthians and the Apostle Paul. There are individuals who are trying to turn the Corinthians against Paul. In this letter we will learn of great concerns that Paul has about how the Corinthians are living. Yet, he sincerely gives thanks to God frequently for them. Why? Well, look, at he tells us why. He says, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. And this is true of every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every believer in Christ is a recipient of God's grace. And everything that this passage speaks of God doing in our lives, He does because of His grace. Grace is very central in our passage. He brings, he brings it up at the beginning of his thanksgiving. And then everything that he will tell, tell us here follows from the grace of God that is given to the one who is in Christ. God's grace is his favor freely given to those who deserve just the opposite of his favor. And I want to tell you three things that stand in contrast to God's grace. The first thing that stands in contrast to God's grace is human merit. Human merit. Human deserving. God's grace, by definition, is unmerited. It's not based on human merit. 
We read in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. And this is speaking of unregenerate Israel. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Israel did some righteous deeds, but God said that the righteous deeds were like a polluted garment. And the same is true of your righteous deeds if you have not been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever good things you may do, whatever outwardly righteous things you may do in God's sight, they are like a polluted garment. None of us has any merit on which to stand before a holy God. As the law of God shows all of us to be sinners against a holy God. In the parable that Jesus tells of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, Jesus tells of a man who has a reputation of being a morally good person, who fasts twice a week, who gives tithes of all that he gets, and is on his way to hell. And another man in that same temple, who was a sinful tax collector, who asked God to be merciful to him, the sinner, and who leaves the temple justified, declared righteous by God, the recipient of a right standing with God that will never be withdrawn. This is grace. It was not the outwardly moral person who walked away from that temple in a right standing with God. It was the one who knew he was a sinner and who cried out to God for mercy, who didn't stand on any supposed righteousness, but cried out to God for mercy. It was that one that received the gift of a right standing with God and walked away from the temple right with God. That's grace. Grace stands in contrast to human merit as the basis of the blessings that God gives in salvation. God's grace also stands in contrast to human obligation. To human obligation. As John MacArthur has pointed out, we are not to say as Christians, well, God was gracious to me and saved me, and now I have to pay Him back. You see, grace is favor given freely, not loaned. We cannot pay for what God gives us by grace, either before we receive it or after we receive it. To offer God the greatest love, obedience, and service we have could not approach paying for what He gives us by grace in Christ. It would be like offering a few pennies to pay the national debt. We do owe God our highest love and greatest service as expressions of our gratitude. And because all we have and are belong to Him, but not because... These are able in the least way to buy or repay His gift of grace. We owe Him everything out of gratitude. We owe Him nothing out of obligation. 
God's grace stands in contrast to human obligation. And thirdly, God's grace stands in contrast to human pride. To human pride. When God gives us blessings by grace, like the blessings that we will see in our text, it leaves no room for pride or for boasting. As we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8-9, through 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Grace leaves no room for boasting. Grace leaves no room for pride. We read in our text, in 1 Corinthians 1.4, I give thanks to my God always for you, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That's wonderful. But Paul doesn't leave it at that. He proceeds to get specific in the rest of the passage about what God's grace has done and will do in our lives as believers in Christ Jesus and as the church of Christ. We're going to see specifically four operations of God's grace in our lives as those called to be saints. The first operation of grace that we see in our text is that we were enriched in every way in Christ. We were enriched in every way in Christ. Look again at verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge. Now, what is this enrichment in speech and knowledge? We'll find out if we keep reading. So look at verse 6. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Verse 6 is a a side note. In the ESV, you you have hyphens that show that it's a side note. He continues, verse 7, So that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 7, he says that you, the church of God in Corinth, are not lacking in any spiritual gift. This is the result of the enrichment in verse 5. As a result of the enrichment in verse 5, the Corinthian church is not lacking in any spiritual gift. Now, a lot will be said about spiritual gifts in chapters 12 through 14. Well, we'll see that the Holy Spirit gives different gifts to different members of the church for the good of the whole church. Now, in verse 7, Paul is not saying that the individual believer is not lacking in any spiritual gift, but he's saying in verse 7 that the church of God in Corinth is not lacking in any spiritual gift. Paul will make it very clear that nobody has all the gifts. By Christ's design, the gifts are given to different individuals so that we will all need each other's ministry. Therefore, the enriching in verse 5 that results in the church not lacking in any spiritual gift, this enriching includes the enriching of the church with a variety of spiritual gifts. Notice in verse 5 what he says about the enrichment. In every way you were enriched in all speech 
and all knowledge. Chapter 12, verses 8 through 10, will speak of both speaking gifts and knowledge gifts. Paul's point is that the church was enriched with everything needed in order to know the things of God and to speak the things of God for the edification of the church. Though the revelatory gifts are no longer needed now that we have God's complete written revelation, what is said here in verse 5 is also true of us as a church, in that God has enriched us with all the gifts that we need in order to understand the Scriptures and to speak the truths of the Scriptures for the edification of the church. Now notice that in verse 5, that God has enriched us in Him. That is, in Christ. None of this enrichment can be received apart from Christ. It is all received from God through the Lord Jesus Christ. When you were converted to Christ and believed in Him, you, you were united to Christ. And through Christ, you received a spiritual gift or multiple spiritual gifts to be used for the edification of the body of Christ. By apportioning gifts to each believer individually as He wills, God enriches the church for service to Him. Remember from verse 2 that believers have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, that we have been set apart by God unto Himself for His service. This is what it means that God has made us saints. And for God's service, we see in verse 5 that we as a church have been enriched. This is good news. We've been set apart to serve God, but how are we going to do it? Well, He enriches us so that we can serve Him. So we can fulfill His calling upon our lives as His redeemed ones. He has enriched us. There is no such thing as a spiritually impoverished church. There are churches who do not use the gifts that they have received. And there are churches that misuse the gifts that they have received. And Paul will rebuke the Corinthians for misusing the gifts that they received. But if a, if a church is a true church that is united to Christ by faith, it has been enriched by God in every way in Christ. Now this means that we as a church can be useful to our Lord Jesus Christ. It means that we as a church can grow in all the ways that our Lord intends for us to grow. And it means that we need to utilize the spiritual riches. Just because we've received them doesn't mean we're using them. We've received them, so we need to utilize them. Now as we utilize the spiritual riches for the glory of Christ, we need to be mindful that it is by God's grace that we have been enriched. Paul started out this thing communicating how he thanks God for them. He thanks God for them because of the grace given them. And he proceeds to speak about how by God's grace he has enriched the church for serving God. It's by God's grace that we've been enriched. So this is the first operation of God's grace stated in our text. 
The second operation of God's grace in our lives as those called to be saints is that the testimony about Christ was confirmed among us. The testimony about Christ was confirmed among us. Uh, Look back to verse 5 to get the context. Verse 5, that in every way you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. The testimony about Christ here is the gospel message. The gospel is a a message about Christ. It is through believing the testimony about Christ that a sinner is saved. So if you are a Christian today, you were saved when you believed what Paul calls here the testimony of Christ. Here in this verse, Paul says to the Corinthians that the testimony about Christ was confirmed among them. And Paul connects this confirmation with the fact in verse 5 that they were enriched with spiritual gifts, something which he continues to talk about in verse 7. So it would appear that Paul is saying here that the spiritual gifts they received confirmed the gospel message that they heard and believed. This word confirmed is used in the same way in Mark 16 verse 20 which says the Lord worked with the apostles and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Though Mark 16.20 is not inspired scripture but was added, it does help us understand the meaning of the Greek word here. In 1 Corinthians 12-14, we will see that God gave the Corinthians miraculous gifts, miraculous sign gifts that were confirmatory in nature that confirmed the gospel message that the Corinthians had believed. During this time when the apostles and the New Testament prophets were laying the foundation of the church, God was pleased to confirm the apostolic message with miraculous signs. Now that the New Testament has been completed, we no longer need the gospel to be confirmed by signs and wonders. For the Apostle Peter, writing after most of the other New Testament books had been written, wrote in 2 Peter 1, verse 19, that Scripture is, quote, more sure, unquote, than even the words that Peter heard God speak at Christ's transfiguration. How is Scripture more sure than the words that Peter heard God speak concerning His Son on that mountain? Scripture is more sure than God's words transmitted orally because Scripture is God's word in written form. In the completed New Testament, we have what Paul calls in our text the testimony of Christ. And we also have in the completed New Testament a sufficient record of some of the miraculous signs performed by the apostles that confirmed the testimony of Christ. And so we do not have the same need that the Corinthians had for that testimony to be confirmed by signs. However, there are other ways the testimony about Christ is confirmed in believers. Other ways that continue this day. The gospel of Christ is confirmed by its transforming power in hearts and lives. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, think right now of how Christ has freed you from the hold that past sins had on your life. Think of how Christ has transformed your heart 
From a heart at rebellion against God to a heart that loves God. Think of how Christ has been transforming you to be more like Him. Now we are in process. We're in the middle of being sanctified. We're not glorified yet. But look at what Christ has already done in your heart and life. From the time of your conversion onward. As Christians, we are living evidence of the truth of the gospel of Christ. We as a church can say that the testimony about Christ has been confirmed among us. As the power of the testimony of Christ has been unleashed in our lives. This is God's work. And it is of His grace, just like everything else in our passage is connected to this grace that God has given to us. It is the second operation of God's grace stated in our text. The third operation of God's grace in our lives as those called to be saints is that we are not lacking in any spiritual gift. We find this third operation in verse 7. It does overlap with what we've already seen. Verse 7 so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says to the the church of God in Corinth, you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. This does not mean that every church has every spiritual gift that God has ever given. It does mean that every church has every spiritual gift they need in order to serve the Lord as He intends. It does not mean that the local church has every spiritual gift needed in order order to do what another church is doing. We like to look at bigger churches that have more well-known ministries. We can, can aspire to be like them. We have to understand... God has not given us every gift that is needed to be like another church. He's given us every gift that we need in order to be faithful to Him. He's given us every gift that we need in order to do the work that He's called us to do. What Paul says here does mean that the local church has every spiritual gift needed to do the work the Lord has for them to do. Now, these spiritual gifts are given to the individual members of the church for the good of the whole body. It's not that God gives a collective gift. I'm going to give this church the gift of teaching and it just somehow belongs to the church collectively. No, He gives gifts to the church by giving gifts to the individual members of the church. Giving gifts individually as He sovereignly is pleased to do. Gifts that will work in concert with one another to fulfill the purpose that God has for this church. Now, notice the term spiritual gift, or simply gift, here in verse 7. My edition of the ESV has the term spiritual gift. The ESV has gone through several editions. Uh, The current edition simply has the word gift. The ESV tries to, to render each original word with one word in English. 
which would be a reason why they would favor just translating this gift. At the same time, you do, there's not a perfect one-to-one correspondence between Greek words and English words, so you do want to give the sense of it, and certainly the sense of this Greek word is spiritual gift, and in context, that's what Paul is talking about. So you just, you just see both ones. I'll, I'll just use the term spiritual gift here as my edition uses. The Greek word that spiritual gift is translated from is charisma, which is closely related to the Greek word for grace, charis. This word charisma speaks of a gift given by grace. It's a grace gift. Spiritual gifts are gifts of God's grace. In this section, Paul is connecting the church's spiritual gifts with the grace that he said in verse 4, we have received. God gives spiritual gifts by His grace, which means there is no place for boasting in our gifts, though that is exactly what the Corinthians were doing. They were boasting in the gifts that they had, or they were jealous of those who had a different gift that they would prefer. That God gives spiritual gifts by grace mean there's, there's no room for boasting in whatever gifts God has given to us. There's no room for comparing the gift you have received with the gift someone else has received. They're all given by grace. They're not given by merit. Given by grace, as God sovereignly wills. Every Christian has received one or more spiritual gifts to be used in concert with the gifts of others for the edification of the church. Whether your gift is proclaiming God's word, or serving, or teaching, or exhorting, or giving, or leading, or doing acts of mercy, or whatever other gift, you can take no credit for your gift. No matter how great your giftedness is. At the women's conference, we were were quoting from Charles Spurgeon. He's been recognized in history as someone who is greatly gifted by the Holy Spirit in preaching the Word of God. But no matter how great your giftedness, you cannot take credit for it. Your gift does not lift you above anyone else in the church. Spurgeon's gift of preaching did not lift him above those in that same church who are gifted to behind the scenes serve others. Behind the scenes show mercy to others. Our gifts do not lift us above anyone else in the church because God has given us these gifts by grace. A spiritual gift is a supernatural enablement to edify the body of Christ in a specific way. And all the glory goes to God. Now, it's okay if you don't know exactly what your spiritual gift is. The important thing is that we understand that we have been given spiritual gifts. And that we seek to edify the body. We seek to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in the church. And as we do so, 
in dependence upon the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God, we will be using the gifts that God has given to us. And over time, you may be able to discern the specifics about the gift that God has given to you. We'll talk a lot more about that when we get to chapters 12 through 14. But right now we are to see that the church is not lacking in any spiritual gift that it needs for serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul goes on in verse 7. You are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, waiting for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. As the Bible speaks of His return as a revealing of Him in His exalted state. And if you want a description of Christ in His exalted state, read John's description in Revelation chapter 1. It's quite a description of the exalted Christ. You are not lacking any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. The church waits for this. Or the New American Standard translates it, eagerly awaits the coming of Christ. The the Greek word does communicate that idea of of an eager waiting for. We don't dread the coming of Christ. We eagerly wait for the coming of Christ. Now, why does Paul, when speaking of spiritual giftedness, mention our eager waiting for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ? It is because our Lord has given us these gifts to be used in His service until He returns. We are to use the gifts with the eager expectation of our Master's return, at which time we will give an account to the Lord Jesus of our service. Paul intentionally speaks in this verse of Christ as, quote, our Lord. That He is our Lord means that we are His servants. For the Christian, serving our Lord and Savior is a privilege. He is our Master because He purchased us with His precious blood. He redeemed us, making us His own. He brought us into relationship with Him so that we now know Him as our Lord, our Master. And for us as believers, it is a privilege to serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, who died for us and was raised for our justification. And Jesus gave several parables that speak of how He, as our Master, would entrust us with resources to be used in His service during His absence. Right now he's absent. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's promised that he will come again. He has sent his Spirit to us. We have his Spirit. But in one sense, Christ is absent. We're waiting for him to return. Christ gave us these parables that speak of how he as our Master would entrust us with resources to be used in his service during his absence. And how when he returns, we will give an account to him. Turn over to Matthew chapter 25 uh, to see one of these parables. Matthew 25. And this really connects with the verse that we are looking at in Corinthians. Matthew chapter 25, I'll begin at verse 14. 
verse 14 in Matthew 25. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. As we continue on, it becomes plain that in this parable, the man who goes on a journey is the Lord Jesus Christ, our Master. It says that he, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants. That includes us. We are Christ's servants. It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents. Now these are not talents in the sense that we use the word talent as like a special ability. Talent was a unit of money. It was a large amount of money. To one of his servants he gave five talents. To another two. To another one. To each according to his ability. So notice that Christ's servants are given different resources. They're not all given the same. One is given five talents, another two, another one. Then he went away. Verse 16. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. Who's he doing this for? He's not doing it for himself. He's doing it for his master. He's being faithful to his master with what the master entrusted him to use for his master's business. Verse 17, So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the, the master... Let me just stop right here. We keep seeing this word master. In Greek it's kurios. It's the same Greek word for Lord. In our text in Corinthians, Paul speaks about the appearing of our Lord, our kurios, our master. Same word here in this parable. Now after a long time, verse 19, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. At my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the last servant is like those in the Sermon on the Mount 
Matthew 7 that will say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, and Jesus will say, away from me, I never knew you. These will be like the goats in the other parable that Jesus tells in this chapter, who will be sent away from the Lord. But what I want us to focus on is with the first two, the real servants of the Master. They're entrusted with different things by the Lord Jesus Christ during His absence and at His return. They give an account. The Lord Jesus Christ is looking for faithfulness. He's not looking for the total amount that you produced. He's looking for faithfulness. Were you faithful with what I entrusted to you? And that very much pertains to what we've just seen. So turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7. So that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a connection here. You've been given gifts, and now you wait for the revealing of your Lord Jesus Christ. As a church, we have received by God's grace every gift that we need in order to serve our Lord faithfully and to hear on the final days, day our Lord's words, well done, good and faithful servant. How wonderful it is that as we see here in Corinthians, by God's grace, the local church is not lacking in any spiritual gift. This means that we should be thankful to our Lord for each member of our church. This means that we should be thankful to the Lord for the spiritual gifts that each member of our church have received. This means that we should be confident in the Lord that we as a church can serve Him. So let me ask you, brothers and sisters, are you thankful to the Lord for all of your brothers and sisters in this congregation? Are you thankful to the Lord for the spiritual gifts that He has given to all the members? And are you confident in the One who, by His grace, has given us spiritual gifts that we as a church can serve Him? This is the third operation of God's grace stated in our text. The fourth operation of God's grace in our lives, as those called to be saints, is that we will be sustained to the end, guiltless in the day of Christ. Sustained to the end, guiltless in the day of Christ. Look at verse 8. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? The first word in the verse, who, is best understood to refer to God the Father. The one to whom Paul gives thanks in verse 4, the one whom Paul says in verse 9 is faithful. How do we know that He will sustain us to the end? Verse 9 says, it is because God is faithful. This implies that God the Father is the one who Paul says will sustain us. Now, such an interpretation of the word who here as referring to the Father, such an interpretation is consistent with the similar passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, which read, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Very similar. And clearly in the Thessalonians passage, God the Father is the one who sustains the believer to the end, guiltless on the day of Christ Jesus. Now, what does our text mean when it says that God will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? This word sustain in the original means to establish, to strengthen. In this context, it certainly has the idea of establishing. So that you, um, who will establish you to the end, guiltless, or as the New American Standard renders, renders it, blameless, or the Legacy Standard Bible, beyond reproach. So who will sustain or um, establish you to the end, guiltless or blameless or beyond reproach, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. This here is one of the great statements in the Bible of God's gracious work of preserving His elect to the end. Paul is saying here that God in His grace will preserve our faith to the end when our Lord Jesus Christ returns and we are glorified with Him. Paul is saying that God in His grace will continue to produce the fruit of saving faith in our life to the end. Paul is saying that God in His grace will show us to be blameless at the return of our Lord Jesus. Now originally, we were the opposite of blameless. Originally, we were blameworthy. But by God's grace, we have been saved, and by God's grace, we will be sustained to the end guiltless. Blameless, beyond reproach, at the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, how can we be confident that God will do this? How can we be confident that we will not fall away, never to to return? How can we be confident that on that day, when Jesus comes again, we will be found blameless? How can we be confident? Well, verse 9 tells us how we can be confident. God is faithful. By whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We are Christians because God sovereignly, effectually called us into the fellowship of His Son. He called us into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ is our Lord because He redeemed us with His precious blood. And God is faithful. It is unthinkable that God would give us to His Son to redeem, that His Son would redeem us at the cross, and that the Father would call us into the fellowship of His Son, but that He would not sustain us to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's unthinkable because God is faithful. The character of God guarantees the preservation of the Christian. The character of God guarantees the completion of our salvation. The Apostle was even confident that our faithful God would preserve the splintered and fleshly church of God in Corinth. This is, what, this is the church he's writing this to. And he's putting weight on this. He's emphasizing this at the beginning. He's writing to a church with great troubles. And Paul expresses complete 
confidence that this church of God in Corinth will be sustained to the end guiltless in the day of Christ. Because God is faithful. Who called this church, who called the members of this church into the fellowship of His Son, our Lord. Those whom God calls into the fellowship of His Son, He pledges to bring all the way to glory. Our confidence that we will persevere to the end and be found blameless must, like the Apostle Paul's confidence regarding the Corinthians, be founded not on the strength of our purpose to persevere. This confidence must not be founded on any assumption that our faith is indestructible. This confidence must not be founded on anything in ourselves. But rather, this confidence must be founded on the faithfulness of our God who called us into the fellowship of His Son. Confidence in other objects is misplaced. Confidence in other objects is false security. The great theologian Charles Hodge of the Old Princeton wrote in his excellent commentary on Corinthians, quote, When we remember, on the one hand, how great is our guilt, and on the other, how great is our danger from without and from within, we feel that nothing but the righteousness of Christ and the power of God can secure our being preserved and presented blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus. If our persevering depended on ourselves, then we would have no reason for confidence. We have reason for confidence that we will persevere to the end. Because God is faithful to preserve His own to the end. He has called us into the fellowship of His Son. He will certainly complete what He has begun. God is faithful to His sovereign will, and He is faithful to His elect ones. By His grace, He will sustain us to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. We read in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And we read in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, And I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Oh, how different biblical Christianity is from Roman Catholicism. We have something far better in Christ than what the Roman church offers. Any notion that a person cannot be confident of their final salvation until it occurs is a false gospel and must be rejected. Roman Catholicism doesn't want you to have an assurance of your salvation. They, they, they view assurance of salvation as license to live however you please. That's not gospel. That's salvation by works. 
That's not grace. We see in our text the grace of God. As we read, Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to be confident. But none of that confidence is placed in self. All of that confidence is placed in our faithful God. We have seen this morning four operations of God's grace in our lives as those called to be saints. The first of all, we were enriched in every way in Christ, that is, as a church, we have been enriched. We have seen the testimony about Christ was confirmed among us. We have seen that we are not lacking in any spiritual gift. We've seen that we, which would be the individual believers, that we will be sustained to the end, guiltless in the day of Christ. So there's corporate dimensions in this text, and there are individual dimensions in this text regarding the operations of God's grace in the life of His people. Do you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? I read to you before from Isaiah where it was said of Israel that all our righteous deeds are as filthy garments in God's sight. I referred to that parable that Jesus told about the two men who came into the temple to pray. That guy who was outwardly moral, he was a Pharisee. He studied the Word of God. He memorized the Word of God. He probably taught the Word of God. Outwardly religious, outwardly righteous, outwardly good. And that's what he stood on. He was confident that he would go to heaven, that he was under the blessing of God, because of the fact that he did these different works of the law. And at the same time, there was that tax collector. Tax collectors were viewed as some of the most sinful individuals in the nation of Israel. That They were known for cheating their own people. They were known as traitors against their people. They were taxing for Rome. They were known as sinners. He knew himself to be a sinner. Here you had the Pharisee. On the one hand, he was looking at the tax collector and saying to God, I thank you, God, that I'm not like this tax collector. Unlike him, I do these different things. He's holding up his righteousness to God. In contrast, you have the tax collector who doesn't even have any sense that I can look up to God where God is located, where God is seated in the heavens in great humility. He's looking down. He knows he's not worthy to be in the presence of God. But something brought him into the temple that day. He's beating his, his breast. 
as he thinks about his sin against the holy God. The temple was meant meant to to picture the holiness of God. That, That God is set apart from us. He's set above us. And that we are separated from Him because of our sin. He comes into this temple and He knows something of the holiness of God. He knows of His sin. He knows He's not worthy to be there. He's not worthy to approach God. But by the the working of God in his heart, he cries out to God, God, be merciful. More literally, God, be propitious to me, the sinner. Not a sinner, but the sinner. I'm the chief of sinners. Be gracious to me, the chief of sinners. Be propitious to me. The word is related to the word propitiation. And there he was in the temple, which had been the earthly place of propitiation. As for so many years, the instruction had been that on the Day of Atonement, that the blood from a sacrificial animal was to be brought by the high priest into the Holy of Holies and placed on that mercy seat. That covering for, 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 uh, of the Ark of the Covenant that, that, ha- that at one time housed the covenant of God. That was the mercy seat where the blood was to be sprinkled. It was the place of propitiation where atonement was made. And here in this temple, which was meant to be a, a place of propitiation that would look forward to the propitiation of Christ at the cross, he says in this temple... God, be propitious, be merciful to me, the sinner. Meaning, turn your wrath away from me and give me mercy instead of wrath. And Jesus says that it was the tax collector who went home justified. Which means that that moral Pharisee did not go home justified. He went home in his self-righteousness and his sins, with no salvation, no eternal life, no true righteousness before God. Whereas, a tax collector who knew himself a sinner, who cast himself on the mercy of God, in the place of propitiation, that looked forward to the propitiation of Christ, when he cries out to God for mercy, exercising faith, Jesus says this one went home justified. Obviously, he was not righteous in and of himself, but that day, God counted his faith as righteousness. God gave him a gift by grace of a right standing with God. The righteousness of Christ was imputed to that sinner that day. And on the basis of Christ's death upon the cross that would occur just a short time from that, that man was saved. And this is a parable. This is a story. But it teaches the truth of the gospel. It teaches that apart from God's gracious, saving work in our life, we do not have a right standing with God. 
we are headed to judgment. But God is merciful. He is gracious. He is a saving God. And He has sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who fulfilled the types in the Old Testament, who fulfilled the, that, that work of atonement as Jesus shed His blood upon the cross to atone for sinners. And upon shedding His blood upon that cross, God the Father tore that temple curtain in two from top to bottom that barred people from the Holy of Holies. He did that because all of that had been fulfilled in Christ at the cross. And so if you know yourself to be a sinner, you know that you do not have a right standing with God, you know that you are under God's condemnation, you know that you have no excuse for your sin, you know that you are headed to eternal destruction, I call upon you this morning to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you might be saved. Repent of your sin, turn from your sin, forsake your sin, and submit your life to Jesus Christ in faith, trusting in Him alone as your Savior from sin. The Father raised His Son on the third day, declaring that the Father had accepted the Son's sacrifice. Jesus Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father, he will return as we've seen in our text. Now, for the believer, that's something that we eagerly wait for. But the world who does not know Christ, they should be in dread of the second coming of Christ. Because He will come in vengeance to bring wrath upon His enemies. I was reading this morning in my devotions in Revelation chapter 20. At the end of that chapter... It's, it speaks of, first of, of Jesus coming again. It speaks of His ruling and reigning. But then it speaks of, after that, the great white throne judgment. Jesus Christ is the one who has been appointed to be the judge in the great white throne judgment. His resurrection from the grave is God the Father's declaration that this is the one He has appointed to be the judge of the living and the dead. What you find in Revelation chapter 20 is that all the dead will be brought to life to stand before the great white throne where Jesus will sit as judge. And the books will be opened. And those who are there will be judged according to their works, according to what they have done. And as you saw in that parable, the Pharisee and the tax collector, we don't have any righteousness of our own to stand on on that day at the great white throne judgment. If we're judged according to our works, then we will perish for all of eternity under God's righteous judgment and condemnation. But, Revelation 20 speaks of a book of life. A book of life where God has written the names of His elect, where God has written the names of the recipients of His great grace and mercy and salvation. And it says, if one's name is found in the book of life, they will not go into judgment. But they will forever be with the Lord. In the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, in which there will be no tears, no pain, nothing displeasing to the Lord, but perfect righteousness for, forever and ever in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, there's no way to avoid 
physical death and there is no way to avoid eternal death, eternal judgment, apart from knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He's the perfect Savior, the perfect Redeemer. We've been studying here God's grace to the one who is in Christ. Oh, my friend, turn today from your sin. Don't hold on to it any longer. Turn from your sin to Jesus Christ, trusting in Him as your Lord, trusting in Him as your Savior, to follow Him all of the rest of your days. The Bible promises to the one who believes on the Son forgiveness of sins, eternal life, adoption into God's family, the Holy Spirit, a new heart, an eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful God and Savior we have. May we trust in Him. May our confidence be in the One who is faithful. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Only in the righteousness of Christ that we can stand before you. We thank you, Father, for your great grace, your great work of salvation, salvation from the power of sin, and ongoing salvation as you are conforming our lives to Christ's holy character and a future salvation, a glorification with Christ. at which time the believer will be found blameless before the Lord Jesus because of your faithful work of preserving your own. You save from the penalty of sin and one day you will save from all, from all other aspects of sin. Oh Lord, Help us to trust in you and enable us to share the glorious gospel of Christ with others. And we pray, Father, that you would really root us, really ground us in our understanding of these things. That you would really root us and ground us an understanding of what you have given us in the Lord Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.